Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. I wanted to give you a quick disclaimer. This episode was recorded over Zoom and there were some audio issues, but our conversation with our awesome guests was so good that we wanted to release it as is. Enjoy! It couldn't have been easy growing up gay in the Midwest, particularly in Kansas City in the 1980s. Many gay young people were kicked out of their homes, ostracized from their families, forced onto the streets. To survive, some of them turned to selling drugs or selling themselves. Some were homeless. Some turned to petty crimes like theft and shoplifting just to be able to eat. They were desperate. But there was one man in Kansas City who claimed that he wanted to help. He said that he understood why so many of these young men turned to the streets and to crime. He had a large house in Midtown, and he owned his own business. And he let it be known that if someone was having trouble, if they were living in an alley or sleeping on a park bench or had nothing to eat, they could come to his house in Hyde Park. If they didn't have anything to eat, they could help out in his store or do chores around his house in exchange for room and board. Word got around the gay community. If you need help, see Bob Berdella. But sometimes there was a higher price to be paid for his help. So mix yourself a black Manhattan and listen to the horrific tale of Bob Berdella the Kansas City Butcher. Robert Bardella Jr. was born in Cayuga Falls, Ohio in 1949. His father worked at a Ford plant and his mother was a homemaker his was an Italian Catholic family. Bob was a sickly child. He was very nearsighted and, and wore thick Coke bottle glasses. He had a speech impediment and he had high blood pressure. He seemed to be very intelligent, intelligent, almost bordering on arrogance. No surprise then that he became a victim of the school bullies. His younger brother, Daniel, was everything that Bob wasn't. Friendly, outgoing, good at sports. And it was obvious to almost everyone that Daniel was his father's favorite. And add to that, in junior high, Bob realized that he was different from other kids in one other very significant way. He was gay. Of course, in the 1960s, he kept this part of his life secret. Despite the fact that his father disapproved of him, or maybe because he was so emotionally distant, and the fact that his father was old school who would frequently keep verbal abuse on his sons and even take a leather belt to them, Bob still wanted to please him. You might say he had a love-hate relationship with his dad. On Christmas Day, 1965, when Bob was 16, his father died suddenly of a heart attack. He was 39 
years old. Bob turned to his church for answers, but didn't find any. After that, he turned his back on organized religion. He buried himself in his books and his movies and his hobbies, coin collecting, stamp collecting. He had pen pals around the world. They would exchange letters and photographs of, of various historical places and, and artifacts and paintings. And this started his obsession with primitive art, which he eventually turned into a business. One of the movies that he saw around this time had a particular impression on him. It was called The Collector. In this film, a man becomes obsessed with an art student and eventually kidnaps her, keeping him captive in his basement until, toward the end of the film, she becomes ill and dies in captivity. In 1967, Bob graduated from Cuyahoga Falls High School. His mother had remarried shortly after his father's death, and he resented her for that, and he resented his stepfather. He was done with Ohio. He moved to Kansas City and enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. His teachers considered him to be very talented, and he had dreams of making his living in art. But he had to support himself. He took a job as a short order cook at a local diner, and he also began to form relationships with other students who were into drugs. He would purchase them and resell them to classmates at a profit. Word got around if you needed drugs at the Kansas City Art Institute, talk to Bob Berdella. One of his customers, though, turned out to be an undercover police officer. He was convicted of selling metamphetamines and received a five-year suspended sentence. Shortly after this arrest, he was also busted in Johnson County, Kansas, just across the state line, for selling LSD. But those charges were dropped. His work at the Art Institute had taken on a decidedly bizarre turn. He produced some artwork that involved torturing and killing animals. His professors criticized this, and he became incensed, believing that he knew more about art than any of them. So he quit school, but he stayed in the area, eventually purchasing a house in the Hyde Park area of Kansas City, Missouri. He was, by this time, openly gay and a well-known fixture at gay events and gay bars around town. His neighbors described him as friendly. They would sometimes comment on the number of young men living with him, and Berdella said that he considered himself a kind of foster parent to these young men. He also expressed frustration to his neighbors that these young men didn't really seem to appreciate the effort he was making and the sacrifice he was making to help them off drugs, and to help them avoid risky behavior. By the late 1970s, he was becoming active in civic affairs. He helped start a neighborhood crime watch. He also worked on fundraising projects for, for the local public radio and television stations. He had graduated from being a short order cook at diners to becoming a senior cook at several well-heeled restaurants around town. And he established a training program for chefs at a community college designed to help 
at-risk youth. By the 1980s, his interest in photography, primitive art, and historical artifacts had developed into a business of buying and selling these items. It became his primary source of income. He developed contacts with uh, art dealers, both nationally and internationally. He was able to stop working as a chef and in 1982 opened a booth at the Westport Flea Market called Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. It was there that he met Paul Howell and Paul's son, Jerry. A fateful day. Over the next two years, Berdella and Jerry Howell developed a, a strange relationship. Jerry, who was a teenager, was in and out of minor legal scrapes, and Berdella tried to help him, bailing him out of jail, paying his fines, helping him get lawyers. But Jerry and his friends would continually hang around Bob's booth at the Westport Flea Market. He, they would taunt them. They would make fun of him for his flamboyant behavior directing homophobic taunts his way. But Jerry and his friends also admitted that they occasionally earn money by selling sex to other men. Over the 4th of July holiday in 1984, Berdella offered to drive the 19-year-old Jerry to Miriam, Kansas for a dance contest. Instead, he took him to his house and gave him alcohol laced with Valium and later injected him with a heavy tranquilizer. He tied him to a bed and tortured him and repeatedly raped him over a 28-hour period. At the end, Jerry stopped breathing, either suffocating on his own vomit or because of the combination of the drugs and the gag that Berdella had placed around his mouth. He attempted to perform CPR on Jerry, but to no avail. He untied his body and carried it to the basement, hanging him upside down over a large cooking pot. He cut his jugular vein and drained all the blood from his body. Using a chainsaw and a bone knife, he dismembered Jerry's body, wrapped the parts in newspaper, and put them in garbage bags and set them out by the curb, watching anxiously as the garbage workers loaded them into a truck, fearing that they would discover the cargo they were carrying. Paul Howell reported his son's disappearance and indicated that he thought Berdella might be involved somehow. Police, in quest police questioned him. Berdella admitted taking Jerry to Miriam but then said, I dropped him off and I haven't seen him since. That ended it, as far as the cops were concerned. Nine months later, Robert Sheldon asked Berdella if he could stay at his house for a few days. Again, Berdella drugged his victim, tied him up and tortured him by doing things like pouring drain cleaner down his throat to burn his vocal cords, filling his ears with cock, putting needles under his fingers, and repeatedly raping him. On the third day, a workman came to the door and knocked, and Berdella suffocated Robert, 
took him to the third floor and also dismembered his body and put it by the curb. A year later, Mark Wallace came for a visit. He too was drugged and tortured, this time with electricity. When he died, Berdella dismembered his body and buried it around his backyard. With each victim, Berdella became more violent and more brutal. He tortured James Ferris by hooking him up to a 7,700-volt transformer, shocking his testicles and arms, thrusting acupuncture needles into his neck and genitals. He kept Todd Stoops alive for two weeks, again, putting cock in his ears and drain cleaner into his mouth. He severely injured him during the rapes, and eventually, Todd died of septus poisoning. He kept Larry Pearson captive for six weeks, kept him tied up, repeatedly raping him. Pearson tried to cooperate, but the torture continued, despite his trying to placate Berdella by doing everything he wanted. Finally, after six weeks, Pearson couldn't take it anymore. He tried to get away. During oral sex, he bit Berdella's penis. Engaged, Berdella took a tree limb and beat Pearson to death. Then he went to the hospital and told the ER doc that Larry Pearson had bit his penis. Then he returned home and disposed of the body. Finally, in March of 1988, it ended. He convinced Christopher Boydston to come to his house with the promise of sex. As usual, he drugged him and tied him up. Bryson begged to be released. Berdella told him if he cooperated, he would ease up on the torture, but not the sexual abuse. At one point, he said to Christopher, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead because of mistakes they've made. He also showed him Polaroids of some of his other victims. By pretending to cooperate, Christopher managed to get a hold of a book of matches. When Berdella had left him tied up and went to work, he used the matches to burn through the ropes, tying him to a bed. He jumped down a second-story window, breaking his foot. He yelled at some bystanders to call the police. They did, and Christopher told them about his ordeal. Showing up at his house, the police asked Berdella for permission to search. He refused, so they got a warrant. Inside, they found evidence that corroborated Christopher's story. They found a number of photographs. They also found some saws and knives with hair fragments, bone fragments, and blood. They discovered a journal where Berdella detailed some of the things he had done to his victims using initials and codes. They found James Ferris's wallet and driver's license. They also discovered several Kansas City Star news clippings about Jerry Howell, but they didn't find any bodies. They kept the house under surveillance and eventually established an 11-member detective task force 
to continue the investigation. Verdella hired a lawyer and threatened to sue the city and the police department for harassment. But the investigation continued. Some of the photographs that Verdella took actually showed part of his body standing next to the victims. And so the prosecutor got a court order ordering Berdella to strip naked and take photographs posing in the same way that he was posing in the pictures. Using the journal, they found other names, names of other men that had been at Berdella's house and experienced some of the same things. The most valuable informant was a man named Freddie Kellogg. He told them that many of the male sex workers around town refused to have anything to do with Berdella because of the torture, the drugs, the painful rape. He also told them about two other victims, or two of the victims that Berdella had already killed. He told them about Larry Pearson. Eventually, the police found a skull in the backyard. Berdella originally said it was just one of the artifacts that he was going to sell at his shop, but using dental records, they identified it as Pearson. Some other family members identified other men in the photographs. Berdella was finally charged with one count of murder for Larry Pearson and five counts of assault and kidnapping for Christopher Boyton. When he appeared at the, uh, at the arraignment, he surprised everyone in the courtroom and the media by pleading guilty. It came to light that he had already been negotiating with prosecutors. He said that he would confess in detail to everything he had done, that he would name all of his victims and say exactly what he had done to them if, if the prosecutors took the death penalty off the table realizing it might be the only way they would ever find out the names of the victims they agreed. And he was eventually sentenced to five consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. He was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. He gave one interview to a public television station and he tried to portray himself as a sympathetic, helpful man who just wanted to help people. He did, he allowed, make some mistakes in his activities with these men, but he never expressed remorse. In fact, he lashed out at the Kansas City Police Department saying if they had actually investigated Jerry Howell properly, no one else would have been killed. To other people that visited him prison, he again never expressed remorse. In fact, when he talked about the victims, he referred to them as his playthings. Bob Rodella's story came to an end in 1992. He was complaining to a minister that he was not being given his high blood pressure medication. And one day he collapsed in the prison and was rushed to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. His original judge, when told of this, simply smiled and said it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. For some time in Kansas City, there was talk of turning his house on Charlotte Street into a sort of museum of the macabre. 
Finally, it was purchased by a local millionaire named Dell Dunmire, who had it torn down. The artifacts were sold to raise money for his legal fees, but despite all the notoriety of the case, his inventory brought less than $60,000 at auction. The families of one of his victims, Robert Sheldon, eventually brought a lawsuit against Bob Berdella, and the jury awarded them a verdict of $5 billion, with a B, dollars. Of course, there's no way they would ever collect it, but at least they had the satisfaction of knowing that they had gotten another guilty verdict for the man who murdered their son and five other people. Thank you, Dad. That was great. Horribly sad and pretty gruesome, but a a great local story. Um, We'll get into more detail about why we chose Bob Berdella very shortly. First, we have Trends of the Crime, which is sponsored by Style a la Mode. And this is the part of our show where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. Since we recently covered 1980s fashion with the Jeffrey Dahmer case earlier this season, I thought I would go over some current trends that are inspired by 1980s fashion. And we also talked about the 80s with Princess Di at the beginning of this season. So we've done a lot of 80s, but I thought we'd talk about some of the current trends made famous by the 80s. First, we have leather jackets. Cindy Crawford was known to rock a good leather jacket. I have a favorite leather jacket that I wear, but people often make fun of me when I wear it, but I don't really care. So I guess I don't look edgy enough for a leather jacket. Dad, how do you like leather jackets for yourself? I have one. (laughs) I wear it when it gets cold, but uh, But that's it. Not for style. No, not for not for style. Mm. Next, we have bike shorts. Very popular right now, thanks to Princess Diana. Her famous crew neck paired with bike shorts looks heavily inspire athleisure and streetwear looks today. Uh, Just look at anything Haley Baldwin wears, and that's pretty much what, you know, what she's wearing. Bike shorts with an oversized crew neck. Next, we have Dynasty-inspired power suits. And we have polka dot dresses, also made famous by our icon, Princess Di. We also have oversized fur coats. And this was a common staple of Grace Jones. And, you know, nowadays we should we should be wearing faux fur. But back in the 80s, real fur was the thing. But please wear faux fur now. <laughs> uh, next, we have acid wash jeans. Salt and Peppa wore a lot of acid wash jeans, but now Gigi Hadid is rocking this trend very commonly. Black lace. This was a Cher and Madonna thing in the 80s. We also have puff sleeves, which I have a lot of those now. I feel like H&M is uh, selling a lot of puff sleeve shirts. We have statement belts, which on the runways of Chanel and Gucci, you'll find those today. Other big designers are showcasing statement belts. And lastly, we have neon colors and vibrant hues. And those can be seen on the runway of one of our featured murders. You know who it is, Dad? Versace. 
Yes, Versace. Donnie Versace, yes. Yep. They are showing a lot of bright colors. So can you think of any other 80s trends you've seen around? Oh, I can absolutely think of one. After the uh, NCAA tournament this week, I noticed that more and more men's basketball teams are going back to the short shorts of the Larry Bird Magic Johnson era. Haven't seen the high knee socks yet, but uh, evidently some basketball teams are going back to the short shorts. So, All right. You know, I, I like sh- the short shorts. Well, maybe I should give some to your mother and, and ask her to uh, hand them for me then. There you go. <laughs> well, I want to. I- or not. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Um, I do want to give our very special guests a chance to weigh in on this 80s fashion. We have Tara Hess and Scott Helling, and they are two of the three co-owners of ZipThor LLC, and they are currently preparing for their next pop-up bar, which is Alibi, a true crime bar that is opening up in Kansas City in uh, this spring, May, May 1st. Is that correct? Yeah. Awesome. Well, do you guys... Before we get into Alibi and uh, your business, do you have anything to add to our trends of the crime with 80s fashion this week? I mean, I'm clearly wearing leggings and a sports bra right now, so I'm all about an 80s fashion moment. Yes, perfect. (laughs) How about you, Scott? Any 80s trends you like? (laughs) I am the least fashionable person ever. (laughs) No, that's about the dad leisure. Dad leisure, yeah. Yeah, I was just say I don't. You know, my dad might have you beat there, Scott. I don't know. Yeah, I'm 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 up there. We should have a competition or something. <laughs> yeah, I'll have oh, a run. Sounds good. Of a runway show, and my husband can be in that as well. You know, see who the least fashionable one is. This will be a test to see if my husband listens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys for being here today. Uh, like I said, we're super excited to have these guests. And I want to give them a chance to tell you all about Alibi. But first, we did have Scott uh, create our cocktail this week. So, Scott, tell us about the Black Manhattan and why you chose it, how you make it, all that jazz. So the Black Manhattan is probably one of my favorite cocktails personally. So it was very easy for me to put it on the menu. Uh, And it's... it's basically just a little bit of a twist on a regular Manhattan. Uh, instead of using sweet vermouth, we use a black Amaro, which is a little bit sweeter uh, than a sweet vermouth. And I feel like doesn't give that alcoholy aftertaste. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mix that with a uh, generally a rye bourbon because ryes are also a little sweeter. Uh, I know that Manhattans were super popular in the 50s, but today they're a little harsh for uh, your common drinker. So we found a way to sweeten it up. Uh, It's very simple to make. Uh, It's a few dashes of uh, aromatic bitters mixed with about an ounce of, uh, we use Averna Amaro and two ounces of bullet rye whiskey, which is what we'll be using, but really any rye whiskey can do. If you have a favorite one, use that one. Uh, And you stir it, Uh, you stir it so that you don't dilute it so much with shaking strain it into a martini glass, add a cherry and an orange peel, uh, and make sure when you're adding that orange peel that you kind of wipe it on the rim of the glass so that you really get some of that orange flavor when you're drinking. And it's very good, especially if you're a fan of bourbon or rye whiskey. Mm -hmm. Well, I cheers. My dad and I are drinking one right now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He he made us a couple before we started. Delicious. 
delicious. It is a lot sweeter. I also had a, what'd you pour me, dad, before well, this? I didn't, I didn't have any uh, Averno Amaro on hand, but I, I had some Maletti, which isn't quite as dark. So I used that, but I gave Macy a, just a little taste of that and you can comment how you liked it. Oh, I, I was shocked because when I smelled it, honestly, it smelled like nail polish remover, but once <laughs> I tasted it, it was the, just the, uh, not the black Manhattan, but just that liquor, I guess. Um, but once I tasted it, it was very sweet. And I told my dad, it tasted like grapefruit kind of, it was like sweet and tart at the same time. So I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree, Scott, as far as the, the way the Amari or the Amaro kind of, uh, sweetens or softens the drink. I made myself just a traditional Manhattan about three days ago. And, and, uh, this is going to be the way I make them in the future. I, I really, really enjoy it. And thanks for sending along that recipe. Excellent. Great. I always love hearing that. Yeah. It's delicious. Well, I want to give you two a chance to tell us about Alibi and your other pop-ups. So I will hand the floor over to you guys for a bit, whoever wants to start. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, our last pop-up, which was also our first, was Solstice uh, anti-holiday pop-up, kind of trying to play to the people who don't exactly want a traditional Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that went over really well. It was also at the Firefly Lounge um, and we gained a good following from that. Um, and then moving forward, you know, we've just been spitballing ideas and true crime is definitely my baby. I absolutely am obsessed. Like, you know, kind of people are nowadays, especially with <laughs> quarantine, binging everything. Oh, yes. Uh, so I pitched the idea and they loved it so we have been working tirelessly since january since we closed the christmas pop-up uh to get this together we also have a in-house artist she's our creative director keely curiel uh making like almost all of the art by hand that's going to be hung up in the bar so we're gonna have yeah, reminiscence of like Jack the Ripper's Alley and the D.B. Cooper jump from the plane and things of those nature. Uh, we're coming up with uh, puppets that are being made by another one of our local artists. Her name is Chuck Mount uh, of some of the serial killers actually in jail. So that'll be really cool too. Um, definitely come and check out all of that art. We, in the end, are going to be auctioning it off. And we will be giving the money from all of those art pieces to charities. We have not uh, settled on the charity yet, but we are looking at victims charities and domestic violence charities that are local that we can donate that money to. Because we obviously understand, along with being obsessed with true crime, there are true victims that come out of that. So we want to make sure that they're taken care of too. I love that. That's great. And I love that you're also supporting local artists. Uh, I've had so many friends tag me in in the article in uh, Feast Magazine saying, oh my gosh, you have to go because we have a true crime podcast. And I'm like, oh, well, they're going to be on our podcast. So I'm definitely going. Um. (laughs) I I think that's just a a tremendous thing you're doing about thinking about donating some of the proceeds to, to victims groups because 
that's something Macy and I always uh, think about when we when we do these podcasts that, uh, you know, the focus is so often on the crime and, and the murderer. But uh, to think of all the lives, the 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 potential that was taken away from the world uh, because of these, yeah, most because of these people yeah. is uh, is really just a, you know, a sad thing to think about. So kudos to you for that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. That's like our focus on our Instagram so far has also been like rising up the victims. And once, you know, we start actually um, laying out what's coming up uh, on our Instagram, it'll definitely be hyper-focused on that so that people understand that, you know, a lot of this is sensationalized with, you know, the murderers and the, the crimes and where they happened and all of that. Like, obviously, with all the documentaries and movies that have been coming out. Mm-hmm. So we just want to make sure that people still understand that, like, as, you know, cool as it is to all come together and be able to talk about our theories and stuff, that there are real people who were affected by these things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very important to remember that. And also the families, yeah, who are still living, still affected yeah. by this. Horrible. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott, a little birdie told me that you love DB, the D.B. Cooper case, and we just covered that last week. So if anyone needs a background on that, go listen. But uh, what inspired you to love true crime about the D.B. Cooper case? So the true crime that I find the most interesting, uh, Tara and Kaylee are the people on our staff that know all of the true crime. Uh-huh. I love the unsolved ones. I love the, we don't know who D.B. Cooper is. Like somehow he got away with what he did. Right. Maybe. Uh, and so I, I focus way more on the unsolved stuff because there are a lot of good unsolved true crimes out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the D.B. Cooper ones just kind of other than the government didn't really have a victim. Like, you know, right, like nobody right. died or got hurt or anything. He just stole from the government. Uh-huh. Uh, which I think makes it just kind of a cool true crime case. It's almost like someone you can kind of cheer for. It's like, Hey, yes. this guy actually pulled it off and got away. You know? like, like an anti-hero. Uh, yeah, for sure. Right. And nobody got hurt. And I know we, uh, actually during one of our business meetings last week, we were, we had your guys, TV Cooper, uh, podcast on in the background. So we caught some of it. Um, but yeah, DB, I, I think it's great that you guys theorized on that. And I think your dad brought, up a great point that as far as we know like none of these dollar bills like showed up like they're still mm-hmm. being tracked but like not even yeah, one gas station had a 20 pass through it yeah. yeah i was shocked at how much i loved that case i watched a documentary on it to uh get ready and i was like whoa this is amazing it's crazy sorry dad what were you gonna say uh i, I was just gonna, gonna say again it is uh you, you just have to wonder is this guy did he survive? And if so, what did he do? Did he just do it for the fun of it? Because he obviously didn't spend the money. So mm-hmm. pretty interesting. It's fun. To, it's fun to think that it's just some millionaire yeah. that just was like, I'm going to see if I can yeah. pull this off. I don't actually need yeah. the money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get into discussing today's case, which is Bob Berdella. I actually asked you two, Tara and Scott, to choose what case we did. Will you please tell us and our listeners what made you settle on Bob Berdella? 
Well, he's definitely, obviously, one that's a big deal here in Kansas City. And, I mean, obviously, being based out of Kansas City, we we definitely want to kind of revolve some of that. And on top of that, it's just a very interesting case, like, in the sense of psychology, nurture versus nature, that sort of thing. So it's, it's very interesting. And since it's so close to our bar and things, like that like Westport Flea Market is right down the street so it's crazy to kind of like know those places growing up and then to hear that story and kind of see them in that light is is insane <laughs> right well I like especially I, knowing as a child I was that I was that close to where these things happened and you know things like that it's like it's very real <laughs> yeah I bet yeah. dad do you remember when all this was going on, were you in Kansas City yet? I was, yeah. We I moved here in '82, so uh, yeah, I remember this. I, I tried to think back, and I don't recall any real publicity about uh, missing persons or anything. It just kind of the way I recall it is, it just was sprung on us one night on the news that a local art dealer had been suspected or, or was being uh, investigated for. Uh, several murders of homeless people around town. And then it just kind of played out the search warrant, the finding of the skulls, uh, Berdella's surprise confession. So it was it was big news for about two months. It it led off on local newscasts. The star really played it up. So um, I I do remember it. Um, but again, what, the, the thing that that uh, has. Oh, that I find I find troubling. It's the same when the Dahmer case, you know, the victims were were homeless people or, you know, they were sex workers and uh, no one seemed to miss them. And if they were missed, the media didn't pay attention. I mean, if if these victims had been, you know, middle class people, uh, you would have seen faces on billboards on I-35. There would have been stories and interviews with family members but you know here uh, nothing really came to light and until you know six people over a period of what three years had been murdered yeah and that's all too common you know we we touched on that in our john benet episode is you know she was a little little girl rich family white blonde girl and She's still getting so much media coverage, which is great. But, it, you know, everyone who loses their life unjustly should be getting media coverage and we should all be looking to see what happened and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all too common. Yeah, uh, that was that was one of the reasons why that case kind of hit me real hard is I'm I'm an advocate for LGBTQ and, and Black Lives Matter and things like that. I do freelance for the pitch as well for, you know stuff in that kind of department and so it's kind of one of those things is whenever I hear the true crime cases where the victims weren't um talked about as much because they were you know gay or you know black or you know of of lower class it's just it's kind of sad to me that like you don't hear about it until the entire crime comes out and it's a big deal because it's a serial killer and not because of the victim Right, exactly. Exactly. That we we saw that in the Dahmer case. Um and both Dahmer and Berdella made 
comments about that later that, you know, if if the police would have started investigating at the beginning, uh, they probably would have caught me. But they didn't. And uh, yeah. they were free just to continue their reign of terror. Well, I think it's funny. Uh, it's a it's an ongoing like almost like, a you know, uh, something that's happened over and over again. It's Jack the Ripper. No one cared about his first three murders because they were all prostitutes. It wasn't until he killed like a 15 year old girl that wasn't a prostitute that all of a sudden the police start caring. <laughs> and, right. it's, and it's just right. really sad that even all throughout history, it seems to have been that way. It's like, OK, yeah. you can kill certain people and we don't care. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same thing happened with the Green River Killer. I actually lived in Seattle when they arrested him. I was like 10 minutes down from his house. And I got to watch the closed circuit court case from beginning to end, watched all of the victims' families from beginning to end. And it was a crazy case to watch. But the same thing, he was picking up girls who were sex workers or who he believed were sex workers. And, you know, most of them... They, they went unnoticed because nobody cared. And even though that, like a lot of them were reported missing because the police saw them as lesser than they were never talked about or investigated. So it went on for years before he was arrested. Yeah. <sighs> Crazy. Well, what are you? I was going to say, Terry, you mentioned something earlier about the nurture versus nature aspect of the case. Yeah. Um, Would you comment on that a little bit? What, what, what strikes you? Well, like my biggest thing, especially being like a huge fan of true crime is the kind of psychology behind it all. And the thing that like some people kind of talk about, but for the most part, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you see over and over again, abuse, begot abuse. So when they're abused as children in some way it it kind of manifests and because it's not taken care of the mental health isn't talked about it kind of manifests in however they can release it which usually ends up being you know criminal activity <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it's one of those things where it's like a lot of people want to argue oh this person has like a mental disability that caused them to do a thing and you know stuff like that but there's some people who have mental disabilities because of how they were raised not because they were born with it and mm-hmm. It's kind of a subject that like I took psychology in college and that's like a huge thing for me is like kind of understanding why people do what they do and how they got there and also how we can kind of stop those cycles from happening and behavior that we can do with future generations that can kind of like stop that from happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There there was a, there was an indication that uh, Berdella may have been raped. Uh, when he was 16 years old. Uh, yeah, it was an accusation that a co-worker of his mm-hmm. had. So, right. yeah. yeah. And well, that's um, also a big... Oh, sorry. No, you, you, go, you go ahead. You finish. Oh, that's, a, that's also a big reason why I'm such an advocate for, like, the victims, because mm-hmm. there's also, you know, victims of crimes that, you know, are of assault and things like that that mm-hmm. can definitely alter how you see things and how you treat things and if we could get them help and we can get them you know it, out of the stigma of thinking that mental health is not something you know it's bad <laughs> you know get them to a psychiatrist 
and be able to talk it out and be able mm-hmm. to come past it, it is a big deal. Yeah, I, I hope we're moving more in that direction than we were, well, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, when um, that's just something you didn't mention. And yeah, his relationship yeah. with his father really seemed to, to probably play some sort of a role in this as well. Um, yeah, very oh, toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I found interesting as I researched this case, comparing it to Jeffrey Dahmer, um, you know, Dahmer's parents both talked about the case later. They talked about their son and growing up, and they had completely different perspectives on it. But I really couldn't find much of anything uh, about uh, Bob Berdella's home life, uh, I didn't find any interviews from people who knew him when he was younger. Um, of course, his father was dead. I, I can't find any information about his mother or his brother. Have Have any of you uh, been able to to track any of that information down? There just seems to be one story about Berdella, and that's and that's it. Well, I know that in some of the interviews um, with the police after, you know, they took the death penalty off the table and he started talking about things he briefly mentioned, which is where, you know, that little bit of information you talked about in the beginning about Uh how his dad was just very stern with him and treated him lesser than because he was different Uh and that he used to take out his anger on his brother and him with the belt, but more him. Uh Um, So, I mean, like, I don't think that, every person who's ever been hit by a belt is going to be a serial killer, but it's also one of those things where it's like, if you're not stopping and figuring out why your, your child is acting out or anything like that, just, just beating them and telling them that they're bad is probably going to end up, you know, doing some sort of damage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and his relationship with his father really reminded me of Aaron Hernandez and Aaron's relationship with his own father and even so far as like the resentment towards the mother when the father died and the mother moving on although with Aaron's mother it was a little more complicated with you know who she was seeing after his father died but still it was like odd because you know the father was very verbally abusive sometimes physically and very stern and disciplinary but the son would tend to blame the mother and resent the mother for moving on too quickly. And I just found that very interesting, that parallel. And with Aaron, you know, there were thoughts that, you know, there was accusations that he was molested as a child and that he might've been gay or bisexual. Um, So I just found a lot of parallels with that. Uh, Does anyone else see that or have any, have anything about that? I was actually surprised by how many parallels there were between Berdella and John Wayne Gacy, who Mm -hmm. also had a tumultuous relationship with his father because his father didn't like his bisexuality, but his father's death hurt him so much. And then he starts picking up young boys and doing similar things that Bob Berdella was doing. Uh, And that kind of goes back to the, you know, the, poor relationship with your father or father figure. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it seems the nature nurture thing probably has a lot more to it because we see it time and time again, that people that have 
especially young men that have bad relationships or poor relationships with their fathers mm-hmm. go on to do uh, bad things sometimes. So yeah. who knows what it is. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that, you know, if it starts out as a bad relationship and then they're not taught in any way that there's ways to cope, there's ways to talk about it, there's ways to approach it that aren't, you know, anger and resentment, <laughs> then, you know, you might be able to move past it, but because, you know, they're, they're just taught that they're just supposed to take it and they're supposed to be okay. It kind of just creates that stigma where they just want the control and they want to be accepted, but they don't really know how to do that. Do you, do any of you see any other parallels between Bob Berdella, Jeffrey Dahmer, and we haven't really touched on Ted Bundy, but um, any parallels with their, I know dad mentioned one between Berdella and Dahmer, anything with Bundy that anyone noticed? I think it's, it's just that kind of lore of having that bit more of control. Like Ted Bundy was very attractive and he had that, that kind of personality that was very like, I can help you. I know how to do everything. I'm just a great person that people are just kind of attracted to and they don't know how to not be. And I think with Bob Rodella, like he wasn't particularly the most attractive person uh, according to stories, but I think he had one of those personalities that was just very like, I'm going to help everyone. I take care of it. And so people kind of were drawn to the nurturing part of that. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of got caught up in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I noticed was, uh, well, all three of them seem to want to keep some totems, if you will, or some souvenirs of their victims uh it didn't start out that way with Berdella, but by about the third murder he was keeping the skulls and he said he wanted to uh to dig up i believe larry pearson's skull after it had decomposed and he was going to keep it in his own little uh i think he called it a home museum and of course we know Dahmer kept a he had a little altar of his victims uh bundy you know he would hide his victims and then continually go back to the bodies and look at the bodies. So they, they all seemed not just to have a fascination with the actual murder or the torture, but they wanted something with which they could relive it and, and remember it. Um, so I saw that as a, another similarity. And I think what Tara just said, it was, it was about control. Um, that's what Bundy said. I wanted to own these people and yeah, he did. <laughs> In a very literal sense, as did Dahmer, and and I'm sure if Berdella had continued, that would have uh, that tendency well, I mean, would were, have increased. Yeah, there were interviews with Berdella with the police uh, where he actually told them that he didn't see his victims as people. Once he captured them, he considered mm-hmm. them like toys. They yep. were never they were never humanized to him, right. and. So I think that's like a huge thing is like once he had that control, it was his thing. It wasn't a human being to him anymore, mm-hmm. which <laughs> is a scary thing to think about. Yeah, it's it's super scary to think that, you know, people can disassociate like my mom's a human, but this person 
is just a toy. You know, that's that's really scary to think about. And that's very common. And it's also very common for serial killers to keep things or to go back and visit the bodies. Like that's a very, uh, I, I talk about the flight attendant on HBO Max like more times on this podcast than I probably should. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a there's a part where, you know, they're trying to figure out how this man died. That's not a spoiler. That's in the preview of the show. And she goes back and visits, you know, the hotel room and her friend who's an attorney is like, that makes you look more guilty than anything. Like, don't go visit the crime scene, you know? So that's like one of the number one things that is a tell is if you keep something or if you're going to visit a crime scene or a body, you know, it's very common. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's been a lot of killers throughout history who have like, gone to actual like town meetings where they're talking about the murders and have been there. And Mm -hmm. it's insane that they put themselves there. But I think that's also going back into the control thought is they feel like if they can be there and get away with it or go back to the body and get away with it, that that's even more of a high on that control. Right. I agree. Well, and it's just the thing that's scariest to me is Let's say this guy doesn't muster up the bravery and the strength to throw himself out a second story window. How, how long would it have gone on? Like if, you know, Berdella kind of made the mistake that he's like, Hey, I'm going to let the, you know, I'm going to let this guy watch TV and I'm, I'm going to, you know, cuff him in front instead of in back and left for work. Guy took the opportunity to make his escape and took it. But we don't know how many victims Berdella actually had. Like he admitted to six yeah. murders, but they found Polaroids of like over 20 young men yeah. in his house. Yeah. So we don't know how long he'd been going or how long he would continue to go. If this one guy hadn't mustered up, you know, the strength and bravery to, to make an escape. Exactly. You know, and, and uh, I think it, w- it would have gone on and until he made another mistake or until he died. I, they asked Jeffrey Dahmer the same thing. If you hadn't been caught, would you still be doing this? And he's in prison. He said, well, yeah, I would. Um, just seemed to be a compulsion. They were driven somehow to do this. So I, I think you're right, Scott. If uh, if not for him getting careless, so to speak, uh, this could have gone on forever. Well, and especially the fact that he had no remorse. I mean, that shows that he... He definitely wouldn't have stopped right then because he didn't feel bad about anything he was doing. So, yeah, that's also scary. Yeah, I mean, it kind of ended the same way as like the Ariel Castro case where, you know, he finally flipped up and allowed them enough freedom where she was able to get to the door and yell to somebody on the street that, you know, she had been kidnapped which is mm-hmm. crazy the Amanda Berry and uh, Gina De Jesus case mm-hmm. in Ohio. Just mm-hmm. like how much longer would they have been there? They raised a child in that house and no one ever knew. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, even Christopher and, you know, those women escaping is like such a risk because what if someone doesn't believe you or no one listens? Like, especially as women, you know, I, there's a common saying, like if someone is attacking you, attacking you as a woman, you need to yell fire instead of help because 
the likelihood of someone helping you when you scream help is like nothing. But if you scream fire, then you're actually going to get people's attention. So it's such a risk for these people to be like trying to get out and get help. And they may die anyway, because maybe no one will believe them and their kidnapper will find them or something. Right. Well, we we need only we need only go back to to Jeffrey Dahmer when the the young fourteen year old boy got out of his apartment and asked for help on the street and they called the police and uh, the man was bleeding from uh, bleeding from his rectum and the police came and Dahmer said yeah I just took him home he's we've just been playing and the police let him go back to his apartment uh, and then of course Dahmer yeah. immediately killed him so. Yeah. Again, I think it's based on that clearly was a he was a he was a young uh, immigrant, a man of color. And uh, Dahmer went on to kill more people. If the police would have just stopped and said, let's investigate this further. Who knows how many lives would have been saved? It's insane how much something could so clearly be something is wrong Mm -hmm. and nothing happens. Like, I don't like he's naked. He's a young kid. He's bleeding and yep. you're just going to give him back to the first guy that walks up like, geez. Right. Well, and that just reminds should remind all of us, like if something feels off, it probably is. Um, and if the police, I don't know, that's a hard one because they did. I mean, I would think that would be the right thing would be to call the police. Um, but if the police aren't doing, I don't know. I don't know what I would do then. Like if I call the police. And then if I'm still there and the police are like, oh, okay, fine. And then what if I still have a weird gut feeling? I don't know what you do in that situation, but follow yeah, your gut yeah. is, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's hard. Report, always report and yep. hope that something gets done. Yeah, it's all we can do. Yeah, yeah. If we see something, say something. Always, always. Well, I wanted to talk about Bob's Bizarre Bizarre really quickly. I thought this was so interesting. <laughs> Cute name, too. It's like, oh, that's fun. Uh, so <laughs> as my dad mentioned, Bob, not cute, but the business name, cute. And by not cute, I mean he did horrible things. That's what I mean. Um, so Bob's Bizarre Bizarre began in 1982 when Bob rented the booth at the Westport Flea Market, which is still in existence, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a restaurant now. Okay, yes, yes. Great hamburgers. Yep. (laughs) Uh, He sold... Oh, go ahead, Dad. Cash only. Cash only. Remember (laughs) that, people. (laughs) Uh, Sold. He sold primarily traded primitive art, jewelry, and antiques. However, this often did did not make him enough money to live off of, so he would resort to selling goods to fellow merchants at a loss or stealing items to sell at his booth. And he met Paul, uh, Jerry's father, who was the first victim because Paul operated a booth right next to Bob's. And Dad, I had a question. Was Bob Mm -hmm. really qualified to be offering legal and financial assistance to Jerry? I didn't understand. Well, you know, he went to art school. That's kind of the same thing as law school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> same. I, you know, I think, well, he had a lot of experience and he was saying, well, here's what you ought to do, or here's a lawyer you can talk to. So, you know, everybody wants to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> so, no, he wasn't qualified, but he was, he was trying to help. 
um, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was weird. So, Dad, did you ever, I guess you moved to Kansas City that year. So you maybe well, never saw Bob's Bizarre Bizarre. No, I, I, I never heard of it until uh, until the the case and then I did but no I didn't know anything about it and we lived uh, we lived in Johnson County then like we do now and I had no occasion to go to Westport back then so no I didn't know anything <laughs> about it well if I any of our <laughs> if any of our listeners have ever been there please tell us that would be so fascinating or like I don't know ever saw his booth or something let us know so I actually I have a friend who purchased a pair of earrings from Bob Berdella Bob's Bizarre Bazaar they were made out of bone of course (laughs) but they were not bones of the victim right that we know of Uh, but she remembers vehemently she she bought these little bone earrings from Bob's Bizarre Bazaar that she still has so oh my god I guess that's kind of cool That's wild. Yeah, there was a lot of concern that some of these some of these victims' bones or teeth, you know, may have ended up in in jewelry that that he was selling. And and as Terry yeah. just said, he he vehemently, vehemently denied that that you know he ever did anything like that. But you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, no one no one will ever know. But it definitely it, it was discussed when he was with the yeah. police and they knew about his oddity shop. Yeah, because it actually had started at Westport Flea Market, and then him and Jerry's father actually rented an apartment above a shop on 39th Street, uh, like about 39th and Main, where the Scientology place used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually lived in that apartment together, which is how he had cultivated a relationship with Jerry to begin with, when Jerry was still like very young. Um, and they ran. And the oddity shop downstairs after they've moved out of the Westport flea market. And, you know, there were lots of people who questioned that, like, because they all, like, got friends, owned pieces of jewelry that had teeth and bones and things. And so when the case came out, like, all these people came to the police. And so they asked him in T4 up and down that none of his stuff was made from the victims. So, who knows? So, <laughs> who's... <laughs> What did he say the bones were from? Uh, he said that he had just found them, um, that he had bought them from like labs and things like that. And he had so like animal bones? People who, who, yeah, animal bones is the thing that he said most of it was. He said that some of it was like bodies that get donated to science, but they only use like parts of the body. And so they'll sell off the other pieces for money for the lab. And so he had that. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> but in the 80s they did <laughs> right they Ooh, have a lot that... more rules with the uh, hip and all that now yes that sends shivers down my spine oh my gosh yeah <laughs> how crazy very interesting yeah. well if anyone else bought anything please tell us on the facebook group that's awesome yeah uh, I also thought it would be interesting to discuss the the movie the collector because Bob Berdella said that his inspiration came from this movie. So when I first Googled it, it was a 2009 film. And I thought, well, that can't be right. Uh, So I Googled it again. (laughs) It's a 1965 British American psychological horror film. And it was directed by William Wyler and starred Terrence Stamp and Samantha Egger. 
Most of it was filmed in LA, but all of the exterior sequences were filmed in London. It premiered, oh no, how do I pronounce this? Um, C-A-N-N-E-S. Can. Can. Can, that's what I thought. Okay. (laughs) The Can Film Festival in May 1965. And both of the stars, Stamp and Egger, were awarded Best Actor and Best Actress. And Weiler was nominated for Best Director. And as far as I can tell, the 2009 film is not a remake. I mean, it's kind of similar as in there's a killer, uh, but I don't think it's a remake. So from what I could tell, similar premise, but not exactly like the 1965 film. But I was like, oh man, this must be pretty good. So I'm going to have to watch it. I didn't realize it had been awarded so many awards. For lack well, of a better term, I, I would have been I would have been nine years old when that came out, and maybe it maybe it showed up at the Mission Theater in Dalhart, Texas. But I'm certain my grandmother would not have let me go. Probably not. <laughs> have you guys seen that, Taryn Scott? I have not seen it, but I have heard about it, and obviously read a bunch about it because of this case. So I've, I've got a grasp on what it's about, but I have not seen it. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of it other than the title when researching this, but hearing your dad's description of what it's about. Yeah. I can see how Bob Bardello would have really taken it to heart. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I know I'm kind of scared to watch it, but you know, it must be pretty good. Maybe I'll watch it. And I also thought it would be interesting to kind of discuss where Kansas city was in the eighties, just because, you know, alibi is going to be Kansas city. We are based in Kansas City. Uh, this is a very local case to all of us. And I was born and raised here. So the big thing that was happening at this time, and you all may be able to speak to this more than I can, but was the whole desegregating of the schools that started in 1977, but went all the way up to 2003. So the Kansas City, Missouri School District, they sued neighboring districts in 1977 for funds to help it desegregate its schools. And the case was put under federal court guidance and made a ton of national news. The judge ordered tax increases to improve the quality of the schools. And like schools were given Olympic style pools and, you know, crazy cool things. Uh, Missouri schools outside of Kansas City argued that they should not have to pay for Kansas City schools if they were outside of the metropolitan area. and. Kansas City residents were angered over plans to bus students over an hour each day over the city's vast area. So like the city wanted to bus students from the suburbs out to these schools. And, you know, the parents didn't like this. Uh, The Kansas City, Missouri School District ended up spending over $11,000 per student. And this was the most of any large school district in the whole country. Kansas City, Missouri hoped that the money would retain 35% white enrollment at nearly every school, but over the life of the case, minority enrollment grew from 67% to 84%. And Kansas City was released from judicial oversight in 2003 after it was ruled in 95 by Missouri versus Jenkins that the courts had exceeded their authority in the case. So that's all I have about that. (laughs) Anyone have anything to add? Because I was not alive, so... Well, I yeah, that that case 
just dominated the the news for about 15 years from the 90s through the the early part of of this century and you know some people say that that also spurred to uh spurred some of the growth in Johnson County as uh they called it white flight uh white folks were moving out of Kansas City Missouri across the state line to Kansas to essentially escape the the desegregation orders so yeah it was a big deal and uh continued yeah. for a long time yeah i was uh i was in school during that time i kind of lived all over the world cuz my dad and mom were separated and had odd traveling job. My dad was in the Navy. My mom was a trainer for the phone company. And so I, Kansas city was kind of the place that we always like ended up back at because obviously heart of America, we always passed through here. So we would always, you know, be here for like a year and then leave and go somewhere else. So I was in and out of the schools uh, around that time. And I, I definitely saw a lot of that because like a couple of schools I went to were, you know, closer to the city. And then a couple of them were farther out in the suburbs. And you could, you could definitely feel the tension of all of that. And, uh, you know, watching certain parents complain about, you know, kids being in certain sports with their kids and, you know, having to uh, be a part of certain groups and, you know, creating of certain groups in the schools, like clubs, for kids to like minorities and um, LGBTQ kids to be able to like go and talk um, about stuff like that. It, it was hard. <laughs> yeah. Like living, living outside of Kansas city, like I lived in some very progressive places as well. Like I lived in Seattle and I lived in California for a little while. And so being in school there, it wasn't a big deal as it was here. And, you know, like, they were already desegregated. They were already, for lack of a better term, we'll use the, the current term woke. Um, <laughs> so, so here, like whenever I would come back here, it was almost like I was like stepping back towards in history, watching that still happen. And it was insane. Like I graduated in 2003 and it was insane that it was still happening, yeah. you know, at that yeah. time. Yeah. Well, when I was researching well, this, I said to my mom, I was like, oh my gosh, we weren't desegregated by the 80s? And she was like, no, it was, that was a big deal. And I can't believe I didn't even, I don't even remember learning about this. So. Well, where did, where did you go to school, Macy? Johnson <laughs> County, Kansas. So there you go. There we well, go. That's why you didn't look, that's why you weren't taught anything. Yes. You know, on a, on a much lighter note, there is one other thing about the 80s in Kansas City we need to note. The, the Royals were good. Yes, <laughs> I have were, that. The Royals were the Royals could win a baseball game every now and then. <laughs> I have that on the list. The uh, Royals played in their first World Series in nineteen eighties, but lo- in nineteen eighty, but lost to the Phillies. Uh, but they won yeah. in eighty five against our I seventy yeah. rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. yeah, that was the year I was born. <laughs> nice. I, I was about a month old when that happened. There, you were the good luck charm. <laughs> the the last big thing I have that happened in the 80s I don't want to go into too much detail because I would love to do an episode on this but the Hyatt the Hyatt Regency walkway collapse uh, this was when the hotel's walkway collapsed during a tea dance on July 17th 1981 
And this dance was intended to bring back the magic of Kansas City Jazz. Uh, 114 people were killed and 200 were injured in the deadliest structural collapse in U.S. history. That was yeah. so crazy. Yeah, your uh, your godparents were actually went to a lot of those dances. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, they they couldn't make it to that one. Thank so goodness. Your life could have been much different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely a crazy uh, case that happened. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right well the last thing i have is is short it's where in the media bob berdella has been portrayed there was a 2009 feature film titled berdella it was written and directed by william taft and co-directed by paul south it stars seth korea or coria as bob bob berdella And interestingly, Seth was born in Kansas City, Missouri. That could have helped him get the role uh, (laughs) local. And there was also a 2004 documentary called Bizarre Bizarre. I love that name. Uh, Based on journalist Tom Jackman's book, Rites of Burial. It was directed by Benjamin Mead, and it recounts the murders committed by Berdella and includes the interview footage from before his death. So I'm guessing... The interview footage that Tara is mentioning, um, I believe that was really the only interviewing he did was once he was assured that the death penalty was mm-hmm. off the table. So yeah. have any of you seen either of those? I have not. Nor have I. Nor have I. Uh, I watched, <laughs> I, I, I watched uh, some of the Bizarre Bizarre. I've not seen the movie. Uh, my friend Kaylee was actually talking about that earlier and she was like, we need to sit down and watch it. I'm like, uh, I looked up the ratings for it and it says that it's very cheesy and bad. Oh That's, yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. I saw sure that. It's probably worth the watch. <laughs> I saw that too. I saw it was not well done. <laughs> Might ruin it for us. So <laughs> maybe we should stay away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that the bizarre bizarre is where I got to see some of like the, the discussion about the interviews that he did and and the fact that a lot of the victims never got buried because he put their bodies in trash bags and they went off to the dump mm-hmm. and they were never able to recover them from the landfill because it had been so long. So yeah. there are many of the victims who never, like the families never got to have the closure of the funeral and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. yeah. kind of an extra layer of craziness to the case. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you two again for being on. This was such a fun conversation. Super fun to have other people who, you know, who love true crime as much as we do. And uh, it's really fun to talk to you all about this case. And I'm so glad you picked this one. It was one that I didn't know anything about, really. Um, and I had a ton of fun. So thank you so much. Thank you. And don't forget. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. Yeah, Thank you. Anytime you want to be on, we will have you back. <laughs> um, and everyone, do not forget to go to Alibi. How long will you guys be open to start with? Do you know? So we will be opening to the public May 1st, and then we will be open Thursdays through Sundays, uh, starting at 7 p.m., um, all the way through the month of May. We may continue into June, but tentatively right now, it is just through the month of May. 
All right. Well, everyone go visit in May so that they have to open in June too. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. And uh, we will see you all next week with the Pizza Bomber case. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, We'll see you next week. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.